And our scripture reading for this afternoon comes first from Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, our, our text will be from 1 Peter 2 and verse 12, and Matthew chapter 5 fits in very well with that theme. We'll read the entire chapter. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And keep that verse in mind, verse 20, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, keep that in mind for the rest of this chapter. Where Jesus says in verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. 
First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly, while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perished and for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oath to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And turning now to First Peter and chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, and I will read only the verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, 
they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. As far as the reading of God's holy word. And our focus then will be on specifically verse 12 of Second Peter two, or First Peter 2. Dear congregation, this morning we read in Second Corinthians 5, where it says, Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. We are called to live not for ourselves, but for the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for his people and rose again. And then verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And as we continue our study here through 1 Peter, this is what we need to remember. We need to remember, as Peter calls us here uh, and shows us what we, how we ought to live as Christians, we have to remember that sanctification, the life of sanctification, flows out of justification. This morning we heard again how God declares His people righteous through the Lord Jesus Christ, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter, he really explained also in, in the first chapter, how God has elect and chosen His people, how He has saved them, how He keeps them by the power of His Spirit. But now he also gets into, has been getting into that life of obedience. The life of what a Christian is to live, not for themselves, but for the one who died for them, for the Lord Jesus Christ, and for the glory of God. And we have to understand that that is only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. No unbeliever can meet those demands. No believer can in their own strength. And what we read in Matthew there, he says, except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It's, it's a bar, it's a standard that no one can attain unto, except Christ has done it. And yet through his Holy Spirit, once he saves and justifies his people, he also equips them to begin in a small measure to be able to obey and to live in these ways to his glory. It's a life of thankfulness to God for his great salvation. And so, in verse 11, we, we looked last time at his call where he says, abstain from fleshly lust. He, he appealed to the Christians to abstain from this fleshly lust. And the very reason that Peter needs to urge us to abstain from these lusts shows us that the opportunity to sin is still always there. The opportunity to satisfy our desires in the wrong way is still always there. And as Hebrews 11 says, if they would have been mindful of the country from where they had come, they would have had opportunity to return. There's always the opportunity to return, to turn away from God and to turn back into this world. And so on the one hand, we can see these desires rising up out of our own hearts, and we find there, there that envy, that, that hatred, that enmity, that those immoral desires that, that well up. But there's also the, the constant temptations around us that we're bombarded with in this world. But Peter then tells his, these Christians in verse 14 of chapter 1, he says that 
But you, as obedient children, no longer conform yourselves to these former lusts. You're no longer, you no longer fit that mold. That's no longer who you are, because God has called you out of darkness into His light. He's given you His Spirit to walk in newness of life. And here at the beginning of chapter 2, he says you lay aside and you put off all those old sins. And then in verse 11 again, he, he says now you abstain. It's like, it's like he's saying you have laid them off. That's, that's your old self. Now do not pick them up again. Do not return to them. Do not conform to them. And so when a sinner is saved by grace, as we heard this morning, that even though God declares them legally righteous in His sight for the sake of Jesus Christ, those sinful tendencies are still there. That old nature is still there. Our hearts can still be inclined to evil. And those fleshly lusts, as Galatians 5 lays out, are still present. But by the Spirit of God, they've been subdued. They've lost their power. But it's still that bitter battle that we must fight, that we must strive with to abstain from fleshly lusts because they still rise up with all their appeal, with all their glamour, with all their empty promises. And they war against our soul. And so here in verse 12, I believe Peter is now teaching us to, to look a little beyond what he was showing us in verse 11. To, to beyond these, these, these lusts, to the effect that it's to have in our life. And you can think of if you would climb a mountain. There's many mountains around here, and you might need exercise, and you think, oh, I'm going to climb a mountain to get some exercise. And then you'd be tempted to count, well, how many steps do I take, or how, how many miles do I walk, or how long am I walking? And every step can be a chore. It'll, it can be a burden, like, can I go home yet? It seems you have to make sure you're, you're doing enough. But now if your grandmother lived on top of that mountain and you wanted to go visit her, then you no longer think about how long it takes or how many steps it would take. But then you keep going because your focus is on getting to grandma's house. You keep going. And so Peter is saying to us here, there is something much greater to look for and to motivate you in your walk of holiness. Because when we focus on every single desire that we need to abstain from, when we focus on every step that we need to take in obedience to the Lord, then everything can seem so difficult, and it can seem so tiring. But if we have the glory of God in view, if we, if we see ourselves as traveling to meet God for His glory, and then you do not even need to think about those individual steps because you automatically step around those fleshly lusts which would hinder your progress and cause you to stumble on the way. You do not stop to entertain them as you climb this mountain to the glory of God. And so while Peter in verse 11, he urges us to abstain from fleshly lusts, here in 12, verse 12 he gives us the reason, the motivation, and he says, Halfway through verse 12, he says, That when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And so Peter here, it seems he's encouraging you to live with that glory of God 
in view. The glory of God is your highest aim. And as you travel, as he says in verse 11, as sojourners and as pilgrims on this earth, aliens in a strange land, you, you, you do so by abstaining from fleshly lust, by submitting to God's law, seeking His glory. And so our theme this afternoon is a gracious encouragement to live for the glory of God. A gracious encouragement to live for the glory of God. And first, our first thought is, by submitting our lives to honorable conduct. By submitting our lives to honorable conduct. Because in verse 12 he says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. So that, it says that when they speak evil against you, but you could, you could add the word so, that so that when they speak against you as evildoers. So what's the purpose of abstaining from sin in our life and to live with honorable conduct? Is it not that God's name be glorified, both by you and by others who see you? That should be the focus that we have in view at all times. As, and as, as a heading, I use, I use these words purposely, submitting our lives to honorable conduct. Because by our life and conduct, we, we, we glorify God by obeying Him, by, by serving Him, and living for Him. And that requires submission. Submission to God's Word and will. Submission to have honorable conduct when we're the most tempted to use immoral conduct. Because it is at that moment when you face someone who is speaking against you as evildoers, who is speaking against you, that you're most tempted to respond with dishonorable or immoral conduct, which is not to the glory of God. But through your life lived in submission to God, in whatever circumstance we find ourselves, we will also be used by God to cause others to glorify Him. We need to remember it's about the glory of God. Because we're so often worried about ourselves. So worried about our own reputation. So worried about what other people might say to, about us or think about us or do to us. Or worried about missing out on some fun. But we must live with that aim to glorify God and to lead others. And so in the rest of this book, really, Peter really explains how we do that in various parts, various aspects of our life. But the question we need to ask ourselves is, in everything that we do, or that we do not do, is our conduct determined by what will glorify God? Because God even uses that opposition that comes against us in our life to glorify His name. And so, thinking about that, how, how does knowing that, how does thinking about that help you to respond? When, for example, you are faced with a group of abortion activists who want to accuse you of interfering with another woman's choice. Or when someone accuses you of, of hatred or bigotry, when you stand firmly on God's Word that says we have been created as male and as female, that marriage is for one man and one woman. How will this help you to respond 
when people falsely accuse you of any wrongdoing or, or being intolerant in this world? How will that guide your words and your thoughts when you even have neighbors who may falsely accuse you or be irrational? Remember, it's for the glory of God, not my honor, not my reputation so much, but God's. Because our first reaction always tries to defend our own reputation. We try to justify our position. And our reaction often wants to win that argument or to appear justified. But he says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, among the unbelievers. That, that's moral conduct. That's abstaining from fleshly lusts, that pride, that anger, that wells up within us. Remember how God calls His people a holy nation, set apart to live for His glory, set apart even as a spectacle in this world to show the wonder of God's saving grace to others. Verse 9 says you're set apart to proclaim the praises of God who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And that honorable conduct that you must live with is meant to draw others to seek for this God. God uses your life as a witness. And so our conduct must never be the cause to cause, the, the, to, to cause others to stumble or to turn away from God. One well-known example is Gandhi, who was a Hindu, and he did not like the caste system in India. And he heard of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had been doing some reading. He was intrigued, and he, he heard that and with Christianity there was no, no caste system. There was equality. People were to be treated equally, so he went to a Christian church. But he was denied entrance because he was not of a high caste and he was not white. And so he said he never attempted to go to church again. And later he's, he's quoted to say, he said, I'd be a Christian if it were not for Christians. That is the opposite of what we are supposed to do. Our missteps can be stumbling blocks for others. But our lives must be distinctly honorable, morally good, to encourage others to follow Christ. But then secondly, by submitting our lives to the reproach of others. By submitting our lives to the reproach of others. In this verse it says that when they speak evil against you, or that when they speak against you as evil doers. And notice it's interesting that it says not if they speak against you, but when they speak against you. When they slander and falsely accuse you of wrongdoing, when they accuse you of being haters, when they accuse you of being intolerant, 1 Peter 4 verse 14 says, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. On their part he's blasphemed, but on your part he's glorified. And so our conduct must always be in that meekness in spirit of fear, in love for the well-being of their soul. And we must never respond with fleshly passions, with the fleshly lusts that automatically well up from the old nature. 
There are proper ways to respond, but Jonathan Edwards has an interesting uh, quote here on this, and he says, true Christian fortitude or true Christian strength or courage consists in strength of mind through grace exerted in two things. First, in ruling and suppressing the evil passions, so suppressing those evil desires and affections of the mind. And secondly, in steadfastly and freely exerting and following good affections and dispositions without being hindered by sinful fear, because we often face the fear of, of facing other people, or the opposition of enemies. But the passions restrained and kept under in the exercise of this Christian strength are those very passions that are vigorously and violently exerted in a false boldness for Christ. Sometimes you see people so seemingly passionate for Christ, and yet are they operating out of the fleshly passions of the heart, of the heart and, and body or out of true godly desire and love? He says the very passions restrained are these fleshly lusts that Peter is calling us to abstain from. And he goes on to say that the true Christian strength is most clearly seen in resisting and suppressing the enemies that are within us. And just for an example, if you ever meet with someone who would speak evil against you or come against you with anger or violence. What do you, you, you feel those rising up. You feel your fear. You feel your anger. You feel whatever feelings welling up within you. And, and often these are the works of the flesh that need to be abstained from, suppressed. So suppressing the enemies that are within because they are our worst and strongest enemies and have the greatest advantage against us. The strength of the good soldier of Jesus Christ appears in nothing more than steadfastly maintaining the holy, calm, meekness, sweetness, and benevolence of his mind in the middle of all the storms, injuries, and strange behavior, and surprising acts and events of this evil and unreasonable world. So in the midst of being confronted with this evil and unreasonable world, Christians are called to remain calm with that meekness and benevolence of mind. Abstain from fleshly lusts. Submitting then to the reproach of others in that spirit of meekness. We must strive by God's grace to live such holy and clean lives that all accusations which are leveled against us have no ground. 1 Timothy 5, verse 14 says, Give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. And of course, we can think of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was accused before Pilate and Herod, but he could not find two witnesses that could agree against him. He found no fault. And what we read in Matthew 5, verse 10, Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you, they revile and persecute you, See all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who are before you. 
Now, this does not mean, of course, that Christians are never to defend themselves, but there is a proper way. There is a godly, God-honoring way, and not in the fleshly passions. But we can expect to be reproached in, in various ways, because during Peter's time, Nero, he blamed the Christians for the great fire of Rome that burned, up for, burned for nine days and destroyed about two-thirds of the city. The Jews were hated and despised by the Gentiles, and Jesus himself was hated. And it says they watched him. They even sent spies who pretended to be righteous so that they might seize on his words, Luke 20, verse 20 says, in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Christians were seen as enemies of the state then, and appears so now as well. Christians are seen as enemies because they do not bow down to the cultural religions. And they will watch you. They will send spies to see how they can accuse you. They will infiltrate your churches and to find something against you. They'll watch you like a neighbor who wants to look for an occasion to blame you for their own problems. And they speak against you as evildoers because they hate Christ and His Word. Because even the way you live is a witness against their lifestyle. Their own conscience accuses them just by being in your presence because they have rejected God and His moral law. And so they cannot tolerate the presence of Christians. So don't expect peace in this world. But when it does happen, we must submit to the will of God by not responding in fleshly passions. And that is only possible by the grace and the Spirit of God. And this world, this world acts and, and, and reacts in, in certain ways. And the, the natural, that's the natural reaction of the fleshly lusts. And the world really expects that you'll react in the same way. So when they hit, they'll expect you to hit back. When they slander, they expect to be slandered back. And the stronger one, the better one, is perceived as the winner. When they lust after the beauty of another person, they expect to be looked at in the same flesh-pleasing way. They dress themselves according to their own fleshly thinking. Their, their worldly-minded dresses in a way to attract the attention of the world. And the most beautiful is perceived as the winner. When they covet their neighbor's houses or, or, or goods, it's because they, the thinking of the world is that whoever has the most or the best is the winner. But when you respond in a way that's contrary to what they expect, it surprises them. When you don't hit back, when you don't slander in return, but speak the truth in love, they don't know how to respond. 1 Peter 2, verse 23 says of Christ, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. And there it goes on to say how he did so for his people who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. 
For you are like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is a righteousness, this is a perfection that we cannot attain to ourselves, but Christ has for, done it for His people, but He also equips His people to begin to live for this righteousness. And so to submit to the reproach of others. Matthew 5 says not to respond in fleshly passion, but to, to turn the other cheek, to, to go the other extra mile, to, to love your enemy, to to love those, to bless those who curse you, to do good to those who hate you, to pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, not to obtain salvation, but out of love for your neighbor and for the glory of God. It calls you also to dress modestly so as not to draw the attention from the worldly lusts, even if you're ridiculed for it. Because God calls us even to these drastic measures to abstain from fleshly lusts, which he compares figuratively to plucking out the eye. Peter says, when they speak evil against you as evildoers, when they falsely accuse you, they should see nothing except your honorable conduct, a moral purity in how you speak and how you act, how you conduct yourself in how you live in how you dress even. And the evil intentions and the evil speaking of the, un, of the ungodly world should motive us, motivate us even more to live to the glory of God, to live holy and blameless lives. But it's here especially where we're called to submit to God under these circumstances when we are reproached because our natural reaction is to respond with fleshly lust, which Peter says, abstain from, and which Jonathan Edwards calls our strongest enemies in our hearts. They want to lash out with our old nature. But by the grace of God, we are to walk in the newness of life, the spirit of meekness. But then lastly and thirdly, by submitting our lives to be a means by which unbelievers will glorify God, by submitting our lives to be a means by which unbelievers will glorify God. Verse 12 says that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, the day of visitation, there are some different views on what that exactly means, but the one view is that final judgment that comes when the judge of all the earth visits the earth and will set everything right forever, when all unbelievers will then be forced to bow down before the God of heaven in submission to Christ, when there's no other option but to acknowledge that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and they will glorify Him not out of love, but out of defeat, and forever acknowledge that he was right and they are wrong. But it is more likely that this second view, that this second view is in, in view here, that this day can refer to the day when unbelievers will glorify God, when God visits them with his Holy Spirit. When unbelievers are born again and taken out of darkness into His marvelous light, when they learn to proclaim the praises of God who, 
who called him out of darkness and transferred him into his kingdom of light. That day of visitation with his Holy Spirit, he, 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 he delivers them from sin. The day when through your conduct and your life, others are drawn to call on the name of the Lord and to seek for the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 13, when Paul and Barnabas preached, there were Jews that were filled with envy, contradicting and blaspheming what they were saying and opposing what they said. But in verse 48, it says, When the Gentiles heard that this gospel was for them as well, that this salvation was for all the ends of the earth, it says they were glad and they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Another example is when Paul or Peter sorry, was invited to go to Cornelius' house, the Gentile. And it says there, Peter explained how God visited the Gentiles, that the Holy Spirit was poured out on Cornelius and his household when he preached to them. God visited them with the Spirit to give salvation to the Gentiles. And so we're called to, to strive to live godly, not just for our own sakes, not just for our own assurance, not just because we are called to live, but also for the glory of God and for the salvation of our neighbor, that they might see your good works. Now, when they speak evil against you, you can respond by the grace of God so that God will also visit them with His Holy Spirit. You can think of the examples, for example, of Richard Wormbrand in prison when he submitted to the beatings of the guards so that he had opportunity to preach to them and to the other inmates. And he would, he would give in to this because he, that was the only way to, to have the opportunity to preach the gospel to them. And it was through that witness that some of those guards were saved and some of the inmates. Also his wife, when she met the soldier who had killed the rest of her family, she met him in a spirit of love and meekness. And her response to him is what made him consider that he was on the wrong path. It made him seek for the God that they knew. And there's many such examples. But when we are faced with a person who speaks evil of us, either to our face or even behind our backs, how will we respond with the glory of God in view and the salvation of these unbelievers in view? When we are so quickly tempted to respond in anger or covetousness, how must we abstain from these fleshly lusts so that God's name is glorified and so that person will consider their ways and be brought to ask about the God that we serve? For any unbeliever that we meet, any person we meet in this world, can they see that you believe in God, that you walk for His glory and by His grace and Spirit? Instead of defending our own honor and reputation, how will our reaction change if we have God's glory in view? And this begins, first of all, in the home, because that's where we are most real but it is throughout our day at work and school or wherever we are. And it is only, it is only ever through the power of the Holy Spirit by which we are kept uh, through faith unto the day of salvation. 
And so Matthew 5, verse 16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen.